Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, up to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. Today on the program, I'm joined by an eight-time All-Star, Cy Young Award winner, and World Series champion, He's currently an Emmy Award-winning broadcaster for Fox. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Hall of Famer John Smoltz. Smoltz, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Very cool. Um, What's harder, winning a Cy Young or an Emmy? Oh, man. Uh, Winning a Cy Young. (laughs) Uh, It takes a lot longer to happen. Uh, It's... uh, you know, it's funny when you mention something like that, I just go back to all the years of being predicted to win and, and just feeling like a failure from all these so-called experts that I told Peter Gammons, I said, you just got to stop predicting me, you know, picking me to win the Cy Young and I'm making you look bad. But in 96, it all came into uh, all came into a perfect way of staying healthy and having the bullpen be perfect. You need a lot of help to win a Cy Young. But um, fortunately, I was able to at least get that off my my back because that was starting to bother me when I was very sensitive to what people thought, probably too sensitive as a baseball player. And then uh, got freed up after that in 1996. When you went to the booth, I I think about your career, you finished, you played 22 years, uh, Hall of Fame career. You went to the booth right away. You started in Atlanta with some great guys, by the way, Joe Simpson and uh, the list goes and Don Sutton. Um, you started there. Was that always your plan? I mean, I think, I think of, of Aaron, you know, growing up with Aaron, my right. little brother, uh, he was in the backyard, Smolty announcing our wiffle ball games. <laughs> I mean, so I always knew, you know, he was, we grew up in Philly and it was Harry Callis. Yeah. So that didn't surprise me one bit when, when Aaron retired, he went straight into the booth. You went into the booth. Was this something that, that just happened to kind of keep you busy? I know you're one of the most competitive teammates I've ever I've ever had was it something like all right I want to try something else in my life was it something to keep you busy or or did did it evolve no it was pretty pretty weird how it happened so I I have shoulder surgery in 2008 and I know for Atlanta and the organization they probably were hoping that would be it and I would retire you know brave I wanted to come back and I remember going under just before going under major shoulder surgery. And I told the doctor, don't lie to me when I wake up, tell me what my percentage of coming back is. And my shoulder labrum was shredded and he gave me a 15% chance of coming back. So I was like, great, like dumb and dumber. I mean, it's my favorite movie. I'm like, so you say I got a chance. And, uh, I pursued that. I came back at a record point, uh, played obviously for Boston, not very well. And I ended in St. Louis, which was great. And my, my goal was to pitch again for the Cardinals. Now, TBS offered me during that year an opportunity to do a playoff game between the Brewers and um, the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. And so I jumped at it. I was like, listen, you know, I did it with Brian Anderson and Joe Simpson. I said, I plan on coming back next year. They said, well, there's a spot open for you if you decide you don't want to. I said, well, I'm planning on playing. I love the experience. But no, I had no aspirations of being a broadcaster. But when I got into the playoffs, being that was my first game doing it, the playoffs was where I lived and loved and played forever with the Braves. So when I when I worked out that next offseason and, and St. Louis didn't end up re-signing me, they went in another direction, I jumped at the opportunity with TBS. I figured that, okay, I'm only going to play for one team. I could have played another two, three years as a reliever. That's what I was going to do. But that wasn't I, – I, that desire left me pretty quick. And I went in the booth, and I said to my agent, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it at the highest level. So the only highest level I knew of was eventually I want to be calling the World Series. So I put in my time. I did about nine, ten years uh, between TBS and MLB Network, and then the opportunity came for Fox. I think this is my eighth year now, um, hard to believe. But uh, I approached it the same way I approach anything in life. I'm not afraid to laugh. Uh, I'm not afraid to learn, and I want to be the best that I can be. And in the broadcast booth, uh, that's uh, that's been my motto. No, and I love it. And and to this day, I love I love listening to you because, you know, we just and I mentioned this to you on a text. Uh, we just had Glav on. You know, I've had Doggy on, uh, Greg Maddox, and those Braves. And we'll get to that. You know, the '90s. I'm sure you've never 
talked about that before, <laughs> but, but I loved it because as I learned, as I went through my career and, and the later stages of my career, when I went back to Seattle, I really learned a lot about myself as an offensive player. And, and I had teammates that really got me to that next level, but it was that high level thinking uh, from an offensive player that half my career, I, I didn't do that. I was kind of hair on fire and I just need to get a hit. And, and when I settled it all down and really started thinking through the bat, it made such a difference for me in the second half of my career. Atlanta, always known for that high-level uh, intellect. The way you guys pitched, uh, you just did it a little bit differently than everybody else. If if the hitter will swing at a ball, why would I throw him a strike? Right. And, and the little things. You know, talking to Glav this last week, it, it was really interesting the way he reads body language. And everybody doesn't do that. Your average right. third or fourth pitcher out there, He's not watching how you took a pitch to know you're looking at a at a different pitch. I love that. For you, when you first got in the booth, what was the biggest challenge for you? Uh, was it being critical of other players? What, what was the biggest hurdle for you early on in your in your broadcasting career? Yeah, the biggest. You know, that was the question they asked me. He said, "How are you going to be able to crit- criticize your contemporary players?" And I said, "Listen, I'm not going to criticize them like." maybe other sports announcers do it. I realize how hard this game is. Now, if you do something wrong three times in a row, well, then I'm going to have to say that that has to change. And it won't be, a, oh, my gosh, how can how can anybody do that type thing? This game's hard. And so what I learned in the booth was the game's slower in the booth. And all my experiences gave me an advantage of knowing what was going on. And all I tried to do, and all I try to do today, I've had to work harder in this role than I've ever had to because the game has really changed. So when I retired... The game was kind of still being played the same way. And then somewhere about eight years after I retired, the game took a shift and it went into a different direction of how the game is actually played philosophically. So I had to learn those things. I still kind of get out in front and try to predict what's going to happen. I don't have to be right, but I'm trying to give the viewer uh, at home who may never know anything about baseball or is an expert kind of the same ability to learn something so that I don't talk down to somebody or then don't dumb it down to make it so easy. So I don't, I don't have any goals other than when I get in the booth, I'm analyzing the game and the two teams as if I was pitching against both teams. It's that simple. And you're right. Look, the game is not reactionary anymore, and it's not feel. It's not played by too much feel. It's played by data and great athleticism and great you know bodies that we've never seen before collectively. And so not so much a chess match between the pitcher and the catcher and the hitter, but here's my simple philosophy that I always live by. When you're standing on the mound and you're in the plate, someone has an advantage. Now, the key is never convey to the other person who has that advantage. And you know, right, as a hitter, this guy's got me or I've got him. And so the goal is to never really convey that. Young pitchers kind of go by the seat of their pants and they're being told informationally how to pitch the game to a hitter's weakness. They may not pitch with their strengths because there's so much information on the weakness. That's my big kind of like – rubber meets the road moment when I say, if your strength is not X, why are you pitching to the guy's weakness when it's not your strength? So there's still this battle right now of information and data that we're trying to flush out. And the new rule changes are going to help flush that out so that it doesn't process so slow. So by me getting in the boat booth, now I do, I've got it from seven hours on game day down to about four hours of work. And I'm trying to read and react based on what I see in the game, I go in with a game plan and I try to keep it pretty simple. My best, the best time I have and the most fun I have is when it gets to October. Cause now I've got accumulated um, resources of a whole year. I've got the matchups and the battles. And when we get to the postseason, that's where I enjoy uh, really doing what I do. An individual Saturday game, which is uh, doing a national game, it's, it's great, but you can't make one game like a seventh game. Like you can't make it a playoff game. It's just one game of 162. When you get to the postseason, that's when that's when I, I that's when I have the most fun and and really uh, I in in essence that's what I get paid for is the postseason so that I can bring the to the living room or whoever they're watching moments that they would go, "Ah, I didn't know that." Oh, well, that's why he's doing that. And luckily for me, the last eight World Series have all been kind of dominated by pitching. And they've been dominated by some pretty good veteran pitching. And that has allowed me to kind of think along with them. I've had a pitcher come to me after a game 
And he said, am I tipping my pitches? I'm like, no, why? He goes, well, you called eight pitches in a row. I said, that's because you know what to do. Like, that's what right. those – and so it makes it makes that game in the booth um, much more enjoyable for me. Everybody knows that's that's followed baseball or, or is a Braves fan, John Smoltz fan, golf's your biggest passion off the field. Um, scenario for you. Yep. PGA Tour, Jim Nance gets sick. Smolchy, could you fill in for him? Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely. <laughs> I know I know enough about golf to be dangerous. I know enough about the two sports that I'm playing that, that they have a lot of the similarities between, you know, what I never liked about certain announcers in golf is when they would say, and they played the sport, and they would say, like, I can't believe Brett Boone just hit that shot under those circumstances. Well, I mean, we're humans. We're not robots. And the moment of, of golf is similar to when you're standing on the mound or at the plate. What people don't understand about athleticism, athletes is that they all still, uh, for the most part, feel it. And you, until you get through that comfort zone, until you get through the peak of what you're trying to accomplish, there are moments of, of nervousness that cause you to do things you would never do under any circumstances in life. And that can be, you know, hitting a wedge shot in the water when you would never do it or swinging a miss at a pitch that, you know, you just got too aggressive. When the moment gets too fast, the athlete's in trouble. I don't care what sport it is. Without and when a doubt. The moment, and when the moment slows down and the heartbeat's slow and everything seems like it's going in slow motion, those are the ones that are going to rise to the occasion. So to answer your question, I would love that opportunity. Not that I'm wishing anything of, a, of Mr. Jim Nance. <laughs> it, it would just be such a thrill to know enough about the game, know how humbling – see, I'm big on – first of all, I'm not big on social media. I don't have any of it, so I don't pay attention to that. But I'm big on trying to explain to the people at home who think I can shoot that or I could hit 240 in the big leagues or I could do that. No, you can't. You just can't. And as a as a pretty good amateur golfer, there's nothing that I could, could bring back to say, I can't shoot that number. I couldn't under those circumstances. These are the best of the best. So I know when we're watching a game show or people are watching sports, the answers come to you quicker because you're not under the gun. You're not at – you know, the family feud sitting on the counter with five seconds to make the decision. But people somehow feel like sitting on the couch, they could do X. And a good announcer will explain without saying it, saying, no, you can't. And this is why. Right. Without without offending the audience. Just correct. Like, let, let me just let 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 I'm going to make you believe this and you're not going to be offended while you believe what I'm going to tell correct. you. Uh, correct. Smolter, you've been you've been playing golf a lot of tournament play under your belt i've got a little bit i'm the same hack i was 20 years ago you know i fluctuate between a a four and a half and a six and a half um never practice but love the game um and and you and you're right uh when the heart when the heart speeds up and and it's isn't it funny I, and i'm sure you've heard this a million times uh fans will tell you well you play you 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 hit home runs in front of 50,000 people. So it's not a big deal if you've got a hundred people watching you tee off in the first tee. And I said, Oh, it's yeah. a different ball game. Yeah. I said, I'm not a pro, you know, this is yeah. not what I do for a living in our, in our occupations. We learn to, to deal with those situations on the baseball field. And the more experience we get, it becomes easier. You talk about the heartbeat. I love that. Because for the longest time as a player, when I first got to the big leagues in the early 90s, uh, man, it was that bases loaded situation. And at the least, I've got to hit a sack fly here. But man, is it a big situation? Mm -hmm. And as a young player, I'd get revved up. Guys like John Smoltz, you love that situation. Man, he's excited right there. He's going to yeah. be extra aggressive here. As I got older as a player, I learned to reverse that on the pitcher and say, the bases are loaded. He's in, be on, yeah. he's in big trouble. He's got to come to me. He's sweating, not me. Right. I don't have to do anything. Let, but but that comes with trial and error. That comes with experience. And I love when you talk about the heartbeat because it is. And when you're young, usually you're just, oh, I got to do good. I got to do good. I, once you get a little bit under your belt and, and you get some experience, you get your butt kicked enough, you learn these little things and it makes the game. It's never easy. Hitting was never easy for me. My best years hitting still the, the toughest thing I ever did on a daily basis. But uh, I, I think that's a really good scenario. That's not talked about enough is the heartbeat. You can slow that heartbeat down. You get into the final 
final round of a tournament, even if, you know, it's not a PGA tournament. Yeah. It's the Tahoe tournament for you. It's a little different standing over that wedge and not blading it, it, not blading it. And, and that's something that these pros, they've lived and died with for years, and that's why the best of the best are where they are. Yeah, it's um, we have so much analytical information that's great for the players. We have technology beyond belief, but we have never been able to measure the heartbeat or the guys that you want to give the ball to or you want at the plate. And that's the next level for organizations. If they understood what players thought, it would put you would be able to put them in better positions. Look, I always I pitch with two of the greatest, and hands down, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin. And I was always I. This is my, this is my description of what it was like. People asked me, said they took turns driving the car, and I was in the back seat. And I was fine with that, but where my time came was in the postseason because the ability to mix and match with stuff. I always wanted it. I dreamed of pitching the big games as a kid. I played it in my mind forever. And I always wanted to be in that spot. Now wanting to do something doesn't guarantee success, but being able to slow it down and utilizing your skill set, that's where it comes to be your advantage. And my advantage was I could miss bats more in the postseason. And so those moments translated into a lot of big games that I got to pitch. People ask me all the time about game sevens. I pitched in three of them. My scenario was like this. If it was a dull roar on the road, I was doing my job. Because a dull roar is is a packed stadium rooting for their team, meaning the dull roar means they're not rallying. There's not men on. There's not you're not in trouble. Loud chaotic noise means you're in trouble, and that means you're always getting in and out of trouble on the mound. And I never heard it. I was I felt like there was a tunnel between me and the catcher and the and the hitter, and I just always felt comfortable. Now. Flip that to a U.S. Open, my first U.S. Open I played in as a Champions Tour, I couldn't swallow. I couldn't spit. I was like, this is the most unbelievable feeling, and I didn't like it because I never had it in baseball. And so it made me realize, oh, shoot, this really goes on. People have these uh uh-oh moments at the plate or on the mound or whatever sport they're doing. And it took me a while. It took me 13 holes to even feel normal because, yes, there's only like – a thousand people watching you play golf on the golf course, but it's not my office. My office was on my mount in the mound. And I learned to translate the heartbeat. At least once I had 10 tournaments under my belt, I like that first tee shot, what it is about sports and what it is about this is we know that people are pay attention. We're result oriented. And if you can eliminate the results and execute your craft, you're better off. But when you're results-oriented and you know people are looking at you like, hey, I thought that guy could play. Why did he just snap hook that driver off the first tee? And we, we, our brain gets away from our mechanical gift. And first, this is how I'd sum it up. I was so in tune to my mechanics on the mound, I never had to fret that. So all I had to do was be mentally tough than the guy at the plate. When I step on a tee, I know I'm not mechanically sound. I'm self-taught, and I know there's too many wiggle rooms for me to be exposed. My brain knows that. So it translates into my heartbeat. <laughs> and when my heartbeat is going the way it's going, I'm hoping I hit a good shot rather than knowing I'm going to hit a good shot. And so I love the adrenaline rush and I love the anxiety, but I never really had that on the mound, thankfully. And that's why when you talk about pro golfers, they're in their office. There's no, there's some shots that make them feel uncomfortable, but they've been there, done that. They've been practicing for hours. We grew up in a sport that basically played since we were six, seven years old, and it became commonplace. So the idea of the heartbeat applies to everybody, but when you get outside of your comfort zone, you really expose that. And that's, and that's the challenge, and the challenge you're seeking currently with golf is, wow, I, this isn't my office, but I want to push myself as far as I can. And, and, and before we, we get off this podcast, I want to address you know, your future and, and what you want to do in golf. First two and a half weeks of the season, I don't know how you thought when you first heard of the rule change this offseason, I'm a purist at heart. I, I like less change for me is better for the game of baseball. I think it's it's America's pastime for a reason. And I like I don't like a lot of change. So my first thought was, you know, I kind of like being the only sport at the highest level that doesn't use a clock. All of a sudden you're going to put a clock on me. That was something we kind of had over the other sports. Mm-hmm. But talking to managers talking to players, talking to fans now, it's been embraced pretty well. The swiftness of the games is unbelievable. Now being on this side, the beginning of this side of the mic for me and and having to do research and watch games, 
it's pretty cool to turn on my DVR. I've only got two hours and 15 minutes to watch yeah. instead of a year ago, three and a half hours. Uh, I think there's going to be some, some tweaks that are going to have to be made just like with anything new changing. My first thought was as a hitter, wouldn't be a big deal for me. I just got to know spring training will kind of train me. I need to get in the box yeah. as a pitcher though. And especially, uh, you know, and I hate to bring it up because I, I beat this like a drum. I think of the Clayton Kershaw's and the Verlanders of today. They've been in the big leagues 20 years, going to be probably first ballot Hall of Famers. And all of a sudden to put this on them and said, you got to be ready in 20 seconds. Well, maybe that's not how you achieved all your success through the years. I didn't think that was fair. Uh, um, I think about the the not getting on the same page with your catcher in the eighth inning of a game six and having to deliver that pitch. Uh, I don't know. I think there's going to be some tweaks, but I think so far so good. I was watching a game yesterday with with Burns from uh, Milwaukee, and there is a cat and mouse going on. Yeah. When that hitter gets in the box and has to engage the pitcher, he's got now eight seconds to deliver the ball. He was holding it till the one second mark. Uh, we saw Scherzer in spring training messing around with it a little bit. I don't know if these kinks are going to be worked out. The running game. Uh, you know, I think the elite base dealers, you're going to start seeing them take advantage of that situation a little bit. Um, but overall, your thoughts, you're, you're, you're watching it on a daily basis. John Smoltz's thoughts on the new rules. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, I love every, every aspect of it, and I'll tell you why. You know, yes, baseball was slow to, to making changes because they played the game for 100 and some years the same way. Every other sport makes a change when they are fearful of which direction their sport's going to. I'll give you an example. Football. Uh, 20 years ago, whatever the time frame was, there was no comebacks in the fourth quarter. Defensively, you could do things that made it impossible. So as a sport, the commissioner is looking like, hey, we can't have a sport that's been defined that in the fourth quarter, there's no comebacks. It's over. We got to change some things up, create more scoring. Well, may, they may have gone too far because the scoring now is 45-38, and they've made changes to enhance the sport action-wise. And so hockey did it basketball's done it. They've made defensive rule changes because they exposed the rules in hockey where it was impossible to come back from 2 nothing or even one nothing because you would play that zone and make it impossible. Basketball, same thing. So baseball really didn't have this problem till lately. And then the data uh, supports the need for change because of the time of game. All right, so the time of game was reaching uh, a three-hour 40, three-hour 30 minute. Now, people won't complain about the time of game if it's a good game. But the reality of bad games were taking so much longer, and this is more important than the actual time of game. Just because you embrace the new rules doesn't mean you hate the way the game was played. You just understand that there wasn't enough action for the fans. See, this is fans-driven along with data-driven. When there's not enough action, fans get disinterested, the, the sport doesn't become as popular, and you plot along like a kind of a um, plug in place. Like the data was outrunning the philosophy of how to play the game. What I believe is going to happen again is it's going to get players in position to showcase their talent. The games are shorter. There's going to be more action. And we're going to reward players for doing things the way you and I got used to. You hit a ball on the ground at 110 miles an hour, you got rewarded. Well, with the shift, you didn't. And it, and it really sucked the life out of the lot of action. Being able to make pitch changes left and right sucked the life out of action. So now everybody has the opportunity to learn in spring training. I believe we're at the crest of there won't be hardly any more ball or strike penalties because everyone's going to get used to it. I'm a big fan of unintended consequences that make the game prosper. So now more hits, more ability to steal, more action, and the fan is engaged and the manager's making decisions, pitchers are making decisions quicker, and they're going to learn how to do that. The game, I don't blame the players. The game's reward system dictates how we play. Our reward system was different. You got paid on playing. You got paid on putting together information based on the last 10 years of your career, not on what you could do. So all of this has evolved, and I think it's going to be the best thing that happens to the game because the game was going in a direction where other sports were passing it up. And if you're the commissioner of a sport, your sole responsibility is to increase that popularity and make sure your sport is vibrant, and it's going to be vibrant again. Like for you as a second baseman, I would think as a position player, if I in a team, let's say I'm a team that has Brett Boone and he's one of the elite second basemen in the league, I have an advantage now. But if I have the luxury of playing a shift, 
there's no great athleticism advantage that I have. We can hide players in a shift that can hit and not expose them defensively. Now we're going to see some teams take advantage of speed and defense. And we know those things are important. And we're going to see the great athleticism position-wise that we weren't able to see because everybody was in kind of clumps. And I think when I first heard it, I thought, I think as a result of this, because of speeding up and, and just being aware of, I got to be in the box as a pitcher. I can't dilly-dally around. I can't go take that extra uh, trip around, get the rosin bag, because I need to buy some time. As a second baseman, you know, I knew my pitching staff, whatever team I was on that year. Right. And and it was a look, it's... I. I this is just a uh, hypothetical, but Smoltz—he's on the—he needs a—he needs a breather right now. I'm going to run in from second base. We're probably not going to talk about anything that's going right. on with. I just know right now you need a breather. You can't do that anymore. No. Now that being said, as a as a defensive player, I welcome this. I love when you get the ball and throw it. That keeps the defense at a heightened heightened position mentally where I'm in the game, I'm in every pitch. And I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, just what your eyes tell you, not the data. I think the data bores it out that, that more balls are being put in play. Averages are higher with the shift, with mm-hmm. the new shift rules. But just watching uh, the eye test, does it seem like more balls are being put in play? Because we're, we're getting into an era where, where the strikeout is becoming accepted. Uh, yeah. And 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 I don't think that's necessarily good for the game. But the eye does it pass yeah. the eye, eye check for for John Smoltz? Well, well, here's the two things that you're you're going to teach differently philosophically. Man on first, believe it or not, most organizations says whatever you do, don't hit the ball on the ground because that's two outs. Analytically, they value they value an out so far more than we used to in the in in the velocity of pitching that's so hard to hit today. If it's hard to hit and you can get two outs on the ground, please don't do that. Hit the ball in the air. That brings in more strikeouts. That brings in more walk. And it suffocates the action. Now you can hit the ball on the ground and be rewarded. And now you can move runners. Here's where I think the rubber meets the road in the pitching aspect. If I'm throwing 80, if I'm throwing 98 miles an hour on average, and I got to do that every 15 seconds, well, I better be in incredible shape or I better be some incredible human because you're not. So pitching is way ahead of hitting right now. That's why the lack of action. That's why the philosophy changed. Because pitching is so far ahead of hitting from a lab, technology, spin rate, velocity, this in a, no one will think like this. I know as a pitcher that we were taught to pitch fast, but we were never max effort pitchers. I know as a pitcher I ran my butt off and I was always in good cardio shape. That's not the case now. So to your point, valid, pitchers would take time around the mound to catch their breath to throw another one at max effort. You can't do that now. You have to – Pitchers don't run. They have other ways of staying in shape. And by the way, they look incredible like they should all be on a beach. But my point is, you better be in cardio shape. Because if you think you're going to throw 102 pitches every 15 seconds max effort, God bless you. And so that is, in an essence, going to make kind of the competitiveness back into a level where the hitters may in the first three innings face their 98, 99. But if that pitcher stays in the game, it starts to be a little bit more watered down, and and the velocity's got it. You would think, in essence, would would take its, it, it would start going on the downside. So, pitchers are going to have a uh, tough times if they don't run and they're not in great cardio shape. This is going to affect them. Hitters, I always felt, and you said it wouldn't have bothered you as much, but I felt like this is hurting hitters more than it hurts pitchers. Really? Because hitters have been given so much information. They know every count. They know every scenario, every tendency. And that's the way to process and slow the pitcher down because you're thinking about what he's about to do. Now we need to read, react, and be athletic. That's what I like. A pitcher's got to do that too, and a hitter's got to do it. And you know what? If you can't hold a runner on, shame on you. And if we never had speed in the game the last five years, we're now going to see it because it wasn't a valued commodity. Analytically, I always were were hearing, if it is an 86% success rate, you can't steal. And now the bigger bases, the throwovers, all those things that, see, when rules are put in place to entice you to do something that's not happening, you know the sport has gone in the wrong direction for that commodity that we were missing. So now we're seeing more stolen bases than ever at a rate. The batting averages are up. So a lot of things are trending in the right direction. And I promise you in a month, or we're closing in on a month, this will be something players do not sweat at all. 
And um, come postseason, you know, I'll be shocked if there's ever a, a penalty that happens at the end of the year. I, I think you make a good point, though, with people there. The players are being enticed to steal bases. I think bringing back those those 80s St. Louis Cardinals team, those were exciting teams. The way they moved yeah. runners, the way they stole bases. We haven't seen that in our modern game. But this is going to entice, especially the base stealers, the true base stealers. Yep. That's going to give them a huge advantage with the with the two-time disengagement rule. Uh, and it's going to entice them. Like you said, the pitchers, I think as time wears on, because they train a different way nowadays, uh, there's going to have to be some changes made going forward on how we prepare for a season as a starting pitcher. But no I doubt. think these are all things. And in the meantime – you're getting a swifter game. And and like I said, everybody I've talked to from managers to players to fans all give me a positive feedback. So that tells me right now, uh, Manford's hit a home run with these, with I, implicating these rules. I would say this, any rule changes that doesn't affect the equipment or the ball, everybody can adjust. Imagine if they said, Hey, we're going to play with a new ba- baseball this year. Now that's a major adjustment. That's something you wouldn't you wouldn't want uh, spring training to get used to. Imagine the NBA says we're going to a different size uh, basketball because uh, the three point shot's too easy to make. All of a sudden, you're messing with the mechanics that they are used to having. But rule changes that don't change the ball, the bat, or the way that you play the game from a from a mechanical standpoint. That's why I think they're all easily uh, uh, adjustable. But if you change the baseball or you change the bat, now you're really messing. Uh, with the, you know, they talked about moving the mound back because the velocity was so great that that would be catastrophic for a lot of pitchers. And I think the reality, again, to touch on what is coming next, which I hope doesn't happen in the game. They keep talking about automatic strike zone. Pray that never happens because if it happens, the hitting will be even harder than it's ever been today. Because if you can top, if you can touch the top of that strike zone and drop a curveball, hitting is going to be uh, it, it'd be dangerous. The reason I don't like the strike zone automatic is automated automatic strike zone is for that reason. Here's the last change I would make on on the strike zone: lower it, just lower it. Give everybody an opportunity. Hitters to, can hit velocity down better than they can hit it up. If that strike zone stays the way it is and the velocity stays the way it is, that's why you're seeing hitters at the launch angle trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. They can't touch that for the most part up to up here. But if you lower the strike zone. You give everybody a fighting chance and pitchers want, you know, pitchers are taught to pitch up. Now, if the strike zone lowers, they'll be taught to pitch down. Hitters will be taught to hit down on the ball. All those things, you know, are are maybe down the road, but man, automated strike zone, please. We do not need that in the game. We're really good where we're at right now. I agree with you. And, and going back to our time in the game, our generation, it was more of an East West plate. I mean, you might get it off the plate away, off the plate in, but it was never up and down. Yeah. And, and right. you're right. Cause most now I loved hitting high balls. I mean, that, I was a hacker and I love going yeah. up and get that, but I don't think that's the, that's for everybody. And for the majority, right. you know, the, a lot of the great hitters, I, I had the privilege of playing with and against, they usually weren't high ball hitters. There were very few Vladimir Guerreros that right. could hit, hit a ball over his head. That, that was not common. And I don't think it's common in the athlete today. So you're right especially with the added velocity, uh, a lot of the, the, the fiscal, the, the money goes into bullpens. And, and yeah. that's how teams build their teams now. A lot of money in the bullpen. In our day, a lot of money yeah. went in the bullpen. That means you're not good enough to be a starter. <laughs> now right. guys are groomed to be to, to, to have six, seventh uh, inning roles yeah. where we never had that. The sixth and seventh were, well, not only are you not the starter, but you're not good enough to be at the end of the game. You're, you're good for the mop-up time in the middle. Yeah. Things have definitely changed in that capacity. 90s Braves. And uh, I'm sure you get asked all the time, you, Doggy, and Glav, always get put together. Sorry for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast. When I say Doggy, that's Greg Maddox. Uh, but I also think it's a pretty complimentary duo to be hooked with for the rest of your life. Right. In my opinion, definitely in my career, uh, my biggest foe. What were the three of you? And 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 when John Smoltz gets asked, I'm sure you get asked all that. Who are the toughest pitchers you face? And I'm sure you have certain guys. Well, he gave me trouble. He gave me trouble. I've I've narrowed it down now. When people ask me, who are the toughest pitchers, Booney? Well, of course, Randy Johnson comes to mind. Pedro mm-hmm. in his heyday, Clemens. But I I've simplified. I said 
Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin in the 90s. Used to look at my USA Today. This is before phones. I'd start <laughs> counting the days. And all due respect to Kent Merker. Love him. Was a yeah. hell of a pitcher. I would just hope that I landed on Merker. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, Johnny, nine times out of ten, I, I, I'd, I'd open, you know, I'd open that newspaper with one eye. I'd be like, son of a bitch. Maddox, yeah. Smoltz, Glavin fall on those days. And already I'm in a, I'm in a bad mood two, day, two weeks out. So I get the word in 98, I get traded to the, to the Atlanta Braves. I remember I'm sitting there down in Florida at Isleworth. You've played there many a time. Oral Hershiser comes by and he's, Hey Booney, I, I heard you got trade. This could be great for you because this was the thing in the, in the, in the nineties, you get traded to the Braves. You're probably going to go to a world series. And he said, Hey, you're going to get a chance to go to a world series. I was all excited. I said, Oral, I don't really care. I said, I don't have to face those three clowns anymore, <laughs> at least for a year. And uh, I got to go over there. That was my first thought. But I'll tell you, when I got there, I remember the spring training. Uh, myself, Brian Jordan were new players. Um, and I remember Bobby addressing us and, and, and saying, this is, our, this is how we do it here in Atlanta. And it was different than any other team I've ever been on. Winning was expected. It was the culture. He rolled out that lineup. It was very workmanship-like. Uh, and I think we won 102 or 103, whatever we won that year. Yeah. Went out of the postseason, disappointing. We, you know, we got beat by the Yankees. Um, talk about that culture of the 90s where you're going to the playoffs every single year. It was the way you had your 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 core. It was the three of you guys. It, it was Chipper Jones. Uh, eventually, it became Andrew Jones as well as a part of that core. And throughout the 90s, you brought in pieces at different times. But it seemed like it was the same Braves. It was very workmanlike. It was, hey, we're here. We're here in spring training to get ready to go on this this journey where we're getting to the postseason. And we don't know. Uh, we're not thinking that's our goal. We know we're going to get there. Our goal is to win the world series. Talk about that culture in Atlanta. Yeah. I think they've got it back a little bit now with Brian yeah. Snitker who, who Bobby had a big relationship with snit has been with that organization and it seems to be getting back to that culture the last five or six years. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know how your feeling was when, when I explained this and how long it took you to get used to our spring trainings because they were so simple. I uh, almost feel guilt, guilt for a lot of guys who came over and said, really, this is all we do. Bobby had a simple culture that he treated you like an adult unless you weren't unless you weren't an adult he tried to teach you how to become an adult and what he what he appreciated about us individually is that we all showed up early got our work in and as pitchers he didn't believe in time killers and spring training he didn't believe in eyewash stuff he just wanted us to do our things and know that our personality would never take for granted our responsibility as pitchers Glavin Maddox and myself never talked about accomplishing anything we never talked about outdoing anybody we basically wanted to become the best versions of ourselves and feed off of each other. And like I said, in the regular seasons, nobody did it better than Glavin and Maddox. You know, I got to shine in a postseason. My regular seasons were okay, but the mindset was get in, get, do your work, and get out. And not to mention the philosophy in the 90s was we we're going to ride the starters. Bobby was going to ride the starters all year. That's why we threw 260, 200 through 250 innings. And he basically was going to give us the percentage of chances to finish games. And then if he had to go get somebody. And so when we, when we were doing our thing, we, we knew that every day, if you had your ego, you were going to get humiliated. If you watched us to pitch and you wanted to be the guy or you wanted to be the ace, that was not a good philosophy to adopt because that guy might throw a no hitter or a, a one hitter or a shutout. And so we simply enjoyed uh, competing off the field with golf, competing and hitting competitions. But when it came to pitching, we learned from each other and we fed off of each other. And I know that, you know, there was a long run there that two to one games were thought that it was over. And we never, I never understood that. I always wanted to go to our hitters and go, do you really think two to one's that easy to win? Well, we, you know, Maddox is in control. This game's over. Like add on, hit a home run, hit too late. <laughs> um, but I heard I, – I don't know if you were part of the conversation, but in spring training when we got like Gary Sheffield or B.J. Surhoff or somebody like that, Bobby would call him in and he said, you see those three guys? They're going to be gone by 11 o'clock every spring training going to play golf. They're the reason we're going to win. So don't, uh, don't be complaining when you see those guys walking off the of spring training at 1130 going to play golf. And the hitters were taken back like, really? That's what he's going to say to me? But then they realized that, you know, our foundation was going to be pitching, defense, and then hitting. And 
you know, when you put 14 years in a row together and you only come up once, it looks like a big time failure. But what we were able to do with the rosters that we had assimilated, we gave ourselves a chance every year to get to the postseason. And when you lose World Series games by one run, it's no different than losing by 10. But it's frustrating to lose your first eight World Series games by one run, knowing a play here, a pitch here, a defensive play here, and your World Series champs. So when you're going at it every year, you don't think about the previous five that didn't go well, or you just think that this is going to be your year and we're going to put together the right formula. And we did it for 14 years. Um, 91's a toss-up. Obviously, both teams went to game seven, one to nothing game in 11 innings or whatever it was. 92 was frustrating. We lost to the, uh, a really good Toronto Blue Jays team. 93 might have been the most frustrating team because we were loaded. That's when we got do- Doggy Maddox. We lost to the Phillies. They went on to lose to, t- to t- t- Toronto. And in 95, we finally got it done. 96 is where I call it the pivotal jump-off point. We're up two games to none against the Yankees. We're going to win that series. If we play it 10 times, we're going to win it eight or nine. But we didn't win it, and we started trading players and going in a different direction. The Yankees spun that into a four out of five. It changed their organizationally, and it changed our organization. 98, we had a great team, and we didn't get it done against the San Diego Padres. So you could point back every time and look back and go, golly, so close. But that's the nature of sports, and that's the nature of what we put together will never be duplicated. But there will be teams in a 14-year run that will win more championships than we did but our argument is you know what as a player selfishly when you left spring training you knew you had a good chance to do something you wanted to do and that's get to the world series um we didn't win it as much as we should have but we look back and it was an incredible run and everybody looks to you know you talk about the postseason and Smoltzy, one of the best postseason pitchers of all time. Everybody thinks of Mariano Rivera uh, because of all the postseason. Well, you had a lot, too, and, and you're right there with him. Um, 95, you win the World Series. Uh, you were an eight-time All-Star during your career. 96, you put it all together. You win the Cy Young. And and I think, you know, and I, and I think it's a good way of talking about Glab and Maddox. Uh but the thing that was so tough for an opponent coming in to face you guys is that you were three number ones and you were all so different. Yeah. You were kind of the, the classic over the top power arm, power slider, not throwing a slider for a strike. If, if you, if you made, <laughs> unless you made you, you know, and you used to drive me crazy. Smolty, when you, when you had to go to the pen and drop down because of your arm problems, and you were nasty then. You came up with a split. You're doing all these. I remember being in a game with you. You're throwing knuckleballs. Yes. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you, I could see the ball. I think I only faced you once or twice. I think we faced each other in Seattle when you were a closer. Uh, this is after my time in Atlanta. And I thought, well, Smoltzy's still nasty. But from his three quarters, I can actually see the ball. Whereas when you came over the top for years and years, I'd just be like, come on, just, just give me a heater to and every time it was a slider and then I would get on the slider and it's a heater on the corner. So it was, it was a cat and mouse back and forth that I, I got the, the short end of the stick on. Um, Can I tell you something though? Can I tell you something? When you went back, when you went to Seattle, okay. And I was in the pen, that game that I faced you, Ichiro, and Edgar Martinez with the bases loaded. This, the backdrop, people ask me about starting and then closing, and then why did I go back to starting? It was that game that I decided mentally I was going back to starting. I was in a run as a closer. I was having success, um, but I was being used a ton. We were in Oakland the series before. I had pitched in five straight games. I got a mandatory day off, and then that next day, if you can get that next day off, it's great for a closer. And we were winning by four runs in the ninth inning. I hadn't stretched. I hadn't gotten ready. Nothing could prepare me to go in that game. And Roberto Hernandez pulled a side muscle with two outs in the ninth, up by four. And Bobby called me in. And I'm like, what? I pointed to me twice. Me? And he (laughs) called me in. Brian McCann was catching. I was irate. I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm not ready. You get all the time you want to be ready when it's an injured player. But I called Brian McCann and I said, you put down finger number one until we lose the game or win the game. I am not getting hurt out here. And I am I am, I am just going to throw fastballs down the middle. We get an out. Okay, that's over with. I'm, I'm, I'm a little still a little hot. Like, 
I'm being used at a, at a record rate only because we didn't have guys in the pen that Bobby was would trust. So now we come to Seattle, and I'm like, all right, they got a great lineup, and I'm preparing for, you know, the game. I come into the eighth inning, bases loaded, nobody out in a three-run game. After pitching that game in Oakland, I walked on that mound. I'm being dead honest. I said, this is it. I am not doing this anymore. I am going to go back to what I love. I'm going to start. And I ended up getting up, giving up one run. I got out of it and got the save. But my point was we lost Glavin and Maddox when I went to the pen. We didn't win a series when I was in the pen. And I told our general manager, if you give me 11 chances, we're going to win the World Series. But we're not getting to me. So when we had this conversation about what was best for the team moving forward, I said, you know what? I'd like to go back to starting. He goes, no, nah, I don't think that's possible. No one's ever done it. You haven't started in five years. I said, I can do it. I've done it 14 times. It's my mindset, and, and we'll be better off with me in the starting rotation if you can find a closer. But I point to that game in, in, in Seattle where I had just flipped a switch and said, if I can go back to starting, this is it. I loved and learned how to close, but I loved to start. And the next year I was able to start, finish three more years, and the rest is history. But that Seattle bases loaded, eighth inning, 3 nothing, where I had to face you three beasts, and it could have gone so, so bad. That was the, the, the decision-making process for me to go back to starting. I mean, I look at your – and it's not like you just went to the pen and did okay. I mean, you say 55 games, 45 games, 44 games, you want to roll aids. Not too many people come to mind when they had the level of success as a starter and a reliever. Eckersley does for mm-hmm. me. Um but but what was the what was the thought process? I know because at the beginning I remember talking to you, Johnny, a, a lot about uh, injuries and how your arm would feel. Yeah. And, and but I remember the day you said, "Booney, I can't throw over the top right now. I got to get through this year throwing three quarters." Right. Uh, when you went to the pen, even though you were having a ton of success, when you you went from one of the top starters in baseball to one of the top relievers. How was that for your sight? Did I don't know. I think about change. It, yeah. it would almost be like from being a shortstop and, and now I'm going to be a DH. Yeah. I, I don't know how I would have handled that. And, and I'm really impressed because my solace, my, my, to get out of my mind when I'm not swinging the bat is I get to go play defense and maybe take right. a hit away from somebody to just the DH. It's like, it's a whole different mindset. Was that for you from, cause being a starter and then hanging out in that pen and coming in the ninth inning, yeah. that's a big difference. How was that for you? So I, I hated it to be honest. Um, here's the backstory that nobody really knows. I come back from Tommy John. I'm making my, my work back to a starter. I'm in Yankee stadium and I'm pitching a game. My elbow starts hurting. I think I re-tear my, my ligament. I come out of the game. I ripped the jersey off my back. I said, I quit. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'd been pitching a lot of pain all the way leading up to Tommy John. I pitched with a torn ligament for probably three years. And the trainers waited for me to cool down. They said, just, you know, relax. Just going to go to Birmingham. We'll get it rechecked. You're going to be fine. I go to Birmingham. They say I've got pretty bad tendonitis, kind of waited out about two months and I'll be okay. Well, two months come and go. And I'm, and I tell Bobby, I said, Bobby, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the minors and try to help you out, out of the bullpen. He goes, no, no, no. I'll wait for you to start. I said, it's not, I don't have enough time. Let me go to the minors. Let me work as a reliever. I'll just help in whatever role I can help. I go to the minors and I start clicking. It starts going 96, 97. Now I get to 98. And I deem myself ready. I pitched three games in a row and I come up and I'll never forget the meeting. Bobby goes, all right, I don't know when I'm going to get you in, but the first chance I can, I'll get you in. It's a nine, nothing game in the ninth at home. I come in out of the bullpen. The place goes crazy. I'm throwing 99 miles an hour because of adrenaline. I think I strike out the side or strike out two and everyone's like, whoa. So that year is nine, 11, nine, 11 happens. And we get that week break. But I, Carse was our closer, and I was starting to pitch to the um, setup guy. And eventually I became the closer after 9-11 or thereabouts right before. Then we finished the season. I'm the closer, and I finished or closed 10 out of 11 games, okay? So that's, that's just now I'm proved my elbow's healthy. I'm a free agent, and I'm like, I'm going back to starting. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, management said, if you stay here, you will be our closer. And I was so frustrated, Booney. I was like, you, you mean I don't even have a choice? And 
at the end of the result, I wanted to play for Bobby so bad that I ended up working that out to be a closer. Maddox and Glavin were there then. And I, in my mind, convinced myself, I'll just save their 300 games. That'll be how I – but it's a personality different, structure different, workout different. It is opposite of who I am. I love the controlled adrenaline that a starter provides. I love going one through nine. I hated sitting on the bench waiting for everybody to do their job so I could get in. I tell people it's like driving the same route to work every day as a, as a starter, getting in NASCAR and flying at 250 miles an hour, getting to your work as a closer. It's like literally the, there's polar opposite. Well, that first year, I start out horrible. I got a thumb injury. I don't pitch all spring training, and I'm bombing. And I'm like, people are saying this is not going to work. What are we doing? Well, that year I ended up with 55 saves. It, it just was a miraculous year, and it sealed my fate. As anything that I could ever – like, all of a sudden now, that's what I got known for. It erased 14 years of being a pretty good starter. It's like, this is I, – I heard articles, this is what he was meant to do, and no, 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 I set a record. Well, it still struggled with my personality. So I decided before the year started, I blew up the bullpen and made a Taj Mahal. I had them build me a room, and I wish I would have checked out the price, by the way, before I asked them to do it because, oh, my goodness, was it expensive. Six recliners, two TV, three TVs, two computers, refrigerator, because you know how hot it is in Atlanta. Yes. And it's boiling down there. And I told the guys, I'm not, this is not, I'm better than you. I, my personality cannot come down there in the first inning, sit around and wait to pitch in the night. So I'm going to hang in the clubhouse and the bull and in the dugout for five innings. I go in the treadmill, warm up, and I'm going to come in the sixth inning, get in my recliner, and we're going to have the best year we've ever had as a bullpen. Well, management freaks out. They think this isn't going to work. I said, no, it's going to work. Everyone's going to be relaxed. They know their rules. You're in air conditioning. We come out. We let all the baseball in the bullpen. And that's the only way I could handle it because I was not wired. You know me. I am not wired to sit around, twiddle my thumbs, be patient, and then come bowling in the ninth inning, you know, and doing the game. So that's kind of, kind of the evolution of what happened. And the backstory was it was kind of my own fault when I was trying to help the team out of the pen that became the only thing they wanted me to do come to contract negotiations. So that's how the story of me going to the bullpen really, really happened. I want to touch a little bit and I'll let you out of here. Uh, watching Shohei Otani. I never thought in my lifetime I'd see this happen. I, the game is just too hard the way we prepare as yeah. hitters. And then I watch you guys. I, I never really hung with pitchers, don't like them, had to face them eventually. <laughs> I never wanted to be friendly with anybody because I got to face you one day when I get yeah. traded or you get traded. Um, but I never thought. It's it's too much at the highest level to pitch, let alone pitch at a at a third or fourth starter level and, right. and be a seven-hole hitter. That, that is a good player. That would be ridiculous enough. But the fact that I'm watching this going on three years now, not only is he doing it, but he's doing it at an all-star level. He's doing it at a top 10 level yeah. as a pitcher and as a hitter. Never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. He's stealing bases. He's laughing at people. He's stealing <laughs> home, you know, throwing 100 and hitting bombs. And yeah. it's like, I, I, I think it's cool, though, because of his personality. Uh, because of how he seems to be. I've never met him, uh, but he seems like a great kid. But you can almost see when he steals second base, the fact that he's doing all these things at an all-star level, he knows he's doing something freaky. It's yeah. just that smile on his face when he looks at a second baseman and kind of puts his arm around. Because he's a monster, too. He's, he's huge. Yes. And he'll put his arm around a middle infielder as he steals second. And he just has that smile like, yeah. And, and it's not from an arrogant no. you know point it's just kind of i appreciate i know i'm doing something freaky right now it's really cool but i'm also a really good guy it's cool for me to watch i become yeah. a huge fan and i'll stop what i'm doing if show he's pitching and he's hitting because i i gotta see is he gonna do it again i turned it on i think it was yesterday they ended up yeah rain, they ended up getting a rain delay so he only pitched two innings gave up one he was already two for two and I watch him on the mound coming out of the rain delay, and he's just throwing these nasty sliders and striking people out. I'm like, it's got to be unbelievable to feel. I know you love to hit, but, I mean, he's hitting, like, for real. Yeah. And, and, and it's just remarkable to me. Just just your your thoughts of well, – similar to what I'm seeing? 
Absolutely. Now, when the first whole thing started, you know, I can imagine him coming over to Major League Baseball knowing I'm about to shock the world on what they've never seen. I didn't think it would be successful early on. I really didn't. I thought they were doing him an injustice. The contract probably had to read with the Angels promising he would do both, right? You would never in a perfect world subject him to this for the reasons of tremendous failure early or, you know, ease into this or he would of course he had the injury with his arm he is exceeding every expectation and every expert that could ever dream of what he's capable of doing the highest compliment i can give him is this if all he did was pitch i think he's the best pitcher in our game would be the best pitcher in our game and the reason i can make that statement we already have the degrom and the garrett coles and the justin verlanders and all the elites that's all they do they don't hit they don't split half their time this guy's splitting his time in a way where he doesn't have an ability to give his brain a rest. If he's slumping on the mound, he's got to go hit. If he's slumping in the, in the plate, he's got to go pitch. He's got to concentrate on something every single day of his career. Yes, he's young enough to do it. By God, he's talented enough to do it. But he's doing it at an elite level that nobody – remember, go all the way back to spring training. He bombed. He couldn't hit anything. They suggested this. He couldn't get anybody out. And yet he was going to break with the team and he was going to embark on this career that the contract read. And, oh, my goodness, is he he's must-watch TV. At the, he doesn't even take batting practice outside. I got to see it at the World Baseball Classic in Miami. He was hitting balls off the scoreboard in center field, which I guarantee is 520 feet or more. The ball comes off his bat differently. The ball comes out of his hand differently. I don't know. The million-dollar question is, I don't know how long he can do this, both. Yeah. That's going to be the, the – the, someone's going to pay him to do both, and the contract's going to be massive. I hate the next statement I'm about to make because this was made about a lot of players, and it's an unfair statement. But the statement I'll make is he's the greatest player to ever play the game if he continues at 80% of what he's doing. I don't imagine Babe Ruth even comes close to what Shohei Otani's doing because what people don't understand about Babe Ruth, he part-time pitched. It wasn't even – he only did it for a couple right. years. Like, he was amazing. He was phenomenal. But what Shohei Otani's doing, he's the number one pitcher on his team. He's now the number one player on his team. And I thought I would never say that with a guy named Mike Trout on his team. So those are ultimate praise of a player that played the game, watched the game, and now broadcast the game. And to your point, I think it's well taken – he knows it. He's got the greatest attitude. He's the face of baseball, and he embraces it. And, yes, there's a language barrier, but it's getting better and better. And by the end of his career, he'll probably be doing his interviews in English, which to me is another amazing thing when you're culturally different. You come over to this States and you try to play this game, which, by the way, in our day, day this is what we would say about him. Got to call him up to the higher league because he has mastered this one. Call him really, up. Get him out. He really has. And I never thought I'd say that. I'm like, no way he can do it. Okay, he'll do it part-time. You know, I was thinking years ago, like, what are they going to do? Are they going to kind of get a carve out a niche? Maybe he can pitch the eighth inning or, right. or do that a little bit here. To, t to tow the slab every fifth day and to be the main, you know, with Trout, Rendon, be the main offensive. Yeah. I mean, it's up amazing. there, in the, it's it's unbelievable. The only thing I think when I watch him is we've never seen it before. I don't know if we'll see it again in our lifetime. Although I think he's going to open the door right. for the for this younger generation to really, hey, it can be done. He's proven right. that. But it's almost like I watch him, and it's like I want to wrap him in bubble wrap because it's almost too good to be true. Like I think to your point, it's been an unbelievable two years going on his third year of of playing at this level. But how long realistically? Can it go? We as fans want it to go forever. I think it's the, like you said, he's, he's the face of baseball. He's what it's about. He's much watch must watch TV. If show yeah. he's, if show he's playing, you want to watch him, but if he's pitching and hitting, you're definitely going to stop and watch that game. I think he's awesome for the game and, and uh, we'll see how much longer he can do it. Very cool. Uh, touching your golf. Tell me about your hip. I read an article about you. Uh, you got the one hip replaced. You want to get the other place. Your next goal in life is to. 
my next goal was always when I retired to see how far I could take competitive golf that would be on the champions tour level. I got a great opportunity. They've been incredible to me qualifying for the U S open and getting sponsor exemptions, playing with some of the greatest in the world was, was just humbling. Um, my, my goal was physically, I would like to put in the work to try to compete and to qualify. Well, the last three years have been really physically tough. And thankfully, you know, my wife and she begged me to get it done. The quality of life was starting to get really bad. And, and the pain was getting to a level where, you know, when you're used to it, you're used to it, but that doesn't make it right. And now having it done two months ago and really experiencing great results from my left hip, I have no apprehension to get my right. My right is worse in the pain aspect. I thought I could buy some time. So after this year, I'm going to get my right done. And I don't know if I've run out of time at 55 now to be 56 in May. Uh, we have this great circuit in celebrity golf that hopefully I'm, I keep getting invited to. That's That keeps my competitive juices. I retired from basketball at 51. I was playing uh, from 41 to 51 in high-level competitive basketball. That probably contributed to my hip problems. And then once this hip gets done, I'm hopeful uh, that, you know, I can regain some of those activities that I miss. I always will be young at heart, even if I'm moving like a, an old man. I've got two grandkids now and probably more on the way, and I want to experience them. So there's still enough competitive juices uh, left in this body to try and give it one more run. But that's the goal, the, the dream. And if it happens, great. If it doesn't, well, I've experienced a lot. Well, John Smoltz, it's been a pleasure, man. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, 213 wins, 154 saves, a rare combo in, in today's day and age. Hall of Fame got inducted in 2015. And uh, my eyes, the, the number one analyst out there in the game. And, and I enjoy your commentary. I, I love your insight, Uh come it seems like you always come from a different place it makes me think and i love that uh so all the best best in your golf pursuing that golf dream if we catch up one day uh we'll get to play golf again but uh, i appreciate you coming on the podcast and for all of you out there watching the boom podcast appreciate you listening see you next time